Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? Well, it's daylight savings time, so it's not good. Not good. Nope. No, no, no. I'm sure anybody not with it. children can relate. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not okay. And mm-hmm. it should just, like, stop. Yeah. I'm over it. I was over it years ago. Mm-hmm. Worse now. Going to put out a petition so, to stop it. <laughs> so if we have any tiny human voices in the background, I'm very sorry, but they are not ready for sleep. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> well, that's all right. Well, are you excited for part two of the Manson Family Murders? I am so excited for it. I'm excited, but I am so scared. <laughs> uh, you did great in part one. So part two, you're going to kill it. It's fine. I hope so. See what I did there? kill it kill it yeah (laughs) definitely gonna kill it there will be murder (laughs) uh yes Uh, oh dear i've spent many many hours preparing this episode so hopefully all goes well i'm pretty sure i have muscle atrophy from just sitting for so long that my muscles are wasting away (laughs) but we're here we're good let's do it yeah it's all good it's fine it's fine And also in part one of the Manson family murders, I just wanted to apologize for the audio quality in the beginning because Zoom, Zoom gods hate us. Apparently we were trying to be like, no, Zoom, Zoom's our friend. It's all good. We've got our audio figured out. And then literally immediately after, for some reason, my audio just went to shit and I sounded like I was underwater and I was like, what the hell? (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Why you gotta be like this, Zoom? I blame you. Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> it was just well, very ironic. Zoom gods. Well, don't you know, we tried to talk nicely to them and that didn't work either. So whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Come at me. Just kidding. Please don't. <laughs> this needs to go yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, we need this to work. <laughs> oh boy. And try to get through things quickly here because it's going to be a long episode. So let's jump right into our fluff and stuff question uh, and responses from our last big episode. And our question was, have you ever been told you look like someone famous? If so, who was it? Um, so my cousin was like mid-conversation with his mom and I was like within earshot. And he just said to his mom to say to me, he's like, tell Michelle Ed Sheeran. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. Celebrity lookalike. I got you. So yeah, Luke says he looks, he's been told that he looks like Ed Sheeran. And I think that's hilarious. I love it. No context, just Ed Sheeran. Yeah. Okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) Thanks, Luke. We always appreciate your responses. That's fantastic. Yes. Uh, My favorite response came from Instagram and it was from Pomegranate Erin. And uh, they said, a woman in London in the 90s once stopped me and asked me for my autograph. She thought I was Alanis Morissette. Oh my God, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) And I just just really want to know, like, did you go for it? Did you play along? Like, sure, uh, I'll sign that. Like, I would have. Aaron, you got to tell us. Right? Did, did you sign the autograph? Let us know. All you got to do is like put an A, an M, and a squiggle. And, and like squiggles. So you'd be fine. It's all you have to do. You could do it. So please let us know. <laughs> Very interested. Amazing. Yeah. And um, for this episode, stick around to the very end because our fluff and stuff is going to be very special. So we're, I'm so excited for yeah. our fluff and stuff today. Yes. So 
definitely make sure to stick around and see what we did there because it's a little bit different. Never done this before. Uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. That's all we'll say. It's super We're fun. Not revealing our secrets. Nope. The very not, end. not yet. You got to get through a lot of terrible things first. <laughs> 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 Sorry. I love it. <laughs> And just one more thing before we dive into the episode, I want to make a quick correction. I had to look this up. Mila Kunis was seven years old when she moved to the States and she was 14 when she started playing Jackie on that 70s show. I think I said she was like 10 or 11. It's not a big difference, but I thought I should clarify, you know. Make sure we're correct. Get our facts straight. Apparently that's important. Not that anybody pointed it out, but I just don't like to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Same. But yeah, that's what I have for now. Excellent. Yeah. All right, friends, grab your glass and get cozy. Let's talk about murder. Dink. Mm. Okay, I need water. (laughs) That wine is dry. (laughs) All right, part two of the Manson Family Murders. Here we go. I'm going to start off with a recap here, but it will also include a whole lot of other details that I hadn't mentioned previously, just to tie up some loose ends. So really, it's a lot of information just (laughs) jammed, packed in here. So So buckle up. Bear with me. So in part one, we discussed the brutal Tate-LaBianca murders that took the lives of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Fikowski, Stephen Parent, Rosemary LaBianca, and Lena LaBianca. And really quickly, I just wanted to give a little bit more background on Abigail and Wojciech because I swear I wrote this down for the last episode, but I must have dreamt that because I hadn't mentioned any of it while recording. So Abigail Folger was the heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune. Uh, She had also worked as a publicity director for a university and then in a New York bookstore and as a social worker in the ghettos. She met Frykowski in 1968, and they moved to Los Angeles together. Wojciech was the one that originally had the connections to the Polanskis, as he had been friends with Roman back in Poland. He came from some money, and his father even helped finance one of Polanski's early films. He eventually moved to the States and had a lot of grand plans, but none ever actually came true. He did do a little bit of acting, and he told people that he was a writer, but no one seemed to have read any of his work. I did previously mention that they were known to dabble in drugs, but I did forget to mention that they actually had some MDA in their systems when they died. That seems important to mention. (laughs) Is it MDA or is it MDMA? In the book, it said MDA, but I know nothing about drugs, so it very well Hmm. could be. Hold on. Quick Google. Okay. (laughs) I'm not a good source for um, any drug information. Oh, yeah. It's like a mess related to drug. Oh, that's worse than I thought it was. <laughs> and, and empathogen and tactogen, psychostimulant and psychedelic drug of the amphetamine oh. family. Oh, there you go. Okay. okay. Cool, 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 cool. I thought Those... there was another M in there. <laughs> yeah, it's probably something else. It's <laughs> probably something else called MDMA. <laughs> yes, I think so. We had also discussed the gruesome crime scenes in great details. Some of the details may have seemed important in the beginning of the investigation, but ended up being insignificant. The first being the out-of-place large blue luggage trunks. At first, they seemed like they had some significance as they had not been noticed by the housekeeper prior to August 9th, and they had been right in the middle of the hallway. In reality, they had just been dropped off the previous afternoon after Mrs. Chapman had left for the day. Roman had shipped them from London, and they contained some of Sharon's clothing, so nothing too crazy there. Detectives also learned that the American flag that was draped over the back of the couch had also been in the house prior to the attack. 
the killers just likely had placed it there as they were clearly setting a scene, like with the bloody writing of pig on the front door. So I just didn't want anybody to be like, hey, what about those things that were mentioned, you know? Other pieces of evidence left at the Tate scene would prove to be more promising, such as the broken gun grip. It was surely connected to the killers. It had been a rather unique gun, a high standard 22 Longhorn revolver, as mentioned in part one, and the broken grip would make it easy to identify. All the detectives had to do was find the gun. And sure, that is easier said than done, but it had been right under their noses for quite some time. I hate this. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. I have some things to say about this part. Just hold on. In fact, it had been in police custody since September 1st, less than one month after the Tate murders. A 10-year-old boy named Stephen had found it while fixing his sprinkler near his home along Longview Road in Sherman Oaks. Longview Road runs parallel to Beverly Glen, and Beverly Glen runs parallel to Benedict Canyon. The gun had been under a bush, and Stephen took it to go show his father. And I know what you're thinking. No, don't touch the evidence. However, we have another smart kid on our hands, and just like Jim in our last episode, Stephen knew from watching a detective TV show about what to do. He picked up the gun by the tip of the barrel so he wouldn't disturb any prints. Bravo, little dude. That's amazing. Seriously the best. Like, these kids in this story are amazing. It makes me so happy. His dad immediately called the LAPD. Officer Watson, who was on patrol in the area, had a look at it. It was a high-standard twenty-two Longhorn revolver, and it was in pretty rough shape. It was dirty, rusty, had a broken trigger guard, the barrel was loose and bent, (laughs) and the right grip was missing. It had seven spent casings and two live rounds inside. Sounds pretty promising, right? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. But Watson didn't think as far ahead as the 10-year-old and touched the gun. All over. With both hands. Like, you might as well have just licked it. Like, (laughs) right? What's this? (laughs) (laughs) I got to taste it for the evidence. It's, It's science. Don't worry about it. Then it was taken back to the Valley Service Division office, booked as found evidence, tagged, filed away, and essentially forgotten about. (laughs) And here is where I propose my idea to improve the LAPD. You get a group of children. (laughs) You make them watch hours and hours of investigation shows, like maybe Forensic Files or something. And then boom, there you have it. A fleet of tiny officers that are more competent than fully grown and supposedly fully trained officers. <laughs> That's amazing. And I have the best picture in my head right now. Oh, me too. But I will uh, clarify, I think you would have to have a range from 10-year-olds to 16-year-olds. So then at least somebody can drive, you know? Well, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. that would be, you know, a little bit more safe. Please don't come like, for me, LAPD. <laughs> Those like 10, 10 to 12-year-olds, they're like little know-it-alls. Like they pick up things and totally. they just like, they own just, it and they got it. They're like. They absorb all the information and just, okay, got it. Let's do this. Super annoying as an adult when <laughs> these tiny people are trying to tell you how the world works and you're like, no, 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 but do you know, but sometimes, I mean, sometimes little, you got little Jims or little Stevens and they're just like, I know better. Don't touch the evidence, people. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Uh, 
So only a few days after the gun had actually been found, the Tate detectives sent flyers around in search of the 22 to other departments in the area. Unfortunately, the Valley Service Division had not received a copy. Of course not. Of course. Because why wouldn't you send a copy of a flyer somewhere directly in the vicinity of the murders? Because, like, working with each other, like, that's overrated. Yeah, we don't do that. Just in general. Yes. <laughs> then there were the suspects that we had mentioned, William Gerritsen and Roman Polanski. Like we said previously, they both had been cleared. There were a few more suspects that were being looked into, however. This included three men, Herb Wilson, Larry Madigan, and Jeffrey Pickett. And these names had to be changed slightly for legal reasons. Just FYI. Hmm. These men were apparently dope dealers and had crashed one of Polanski's large catered parties at the Cielo residence back in March. There was a bit of an altercation when apparently Wilson stepped on William Tennant's foot, who, remember, is Roman's business manager. The two other men, Madigan and Pickett, took Wilson's side in the argument, and Roman ended up having to kick them out of the party. And this may seem like a minor incident, but there is actually a little bit more to this. The three men, plus another, Gerald Jones, had been frequent visitors to the Cielo residence. Wilson and Madigan supplied most of the drugs for Wojciech and Abigail, including the MDA in their systems the night they died. Madigan was also apparently Jay's cocaine dealer, and Jones' claim to fame was that he was an expert with knives. Whatever that means. <laughs> cool. Yeah. It's like, uh... I'm just tagging along because... I'm the the knife expert, you know. And it's just, just like in okay. case you need a knife, I've got a knife. Cool. I imagine him with like one of those big like, like a not blade trench coat. That's the word I'm looking for. And he just opens it up, and it's just knives. Knives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you want a knife? Anyways. <laughs> As for Pickett, he moved into Wojciech and Gibby's old place once they moved into Cielo, but he tried to strangle a friend of Wojciech's who had also lived there. Once Wojciech learned of this, he told Pickett to get out. Pitt clearly did not like this, as he swore, I'll kill them all and Wojciech will be the first. Yeah, that doesn't look good for you, dude. Not really. Nope. <laughs> so, yeah, they seemed like pretty good suspects at first, especially since the investigators were focusing on a drug-related motive, but eventually they all were eliminated as suspects. Each of them had either been out of town that weekend or passed a polygraph examination. Those were the suspects so far in the Tate case anyways, but as we know, detectives almost immediately had determined that those murders were not related to the murders of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. That investigation was leaning towards a gambling slash debt collecting motive, and they had even thought perhaps that the mafia was involved. Lino apparently had a secret side to him that loved gambling, and he even owned nine racehorses. At the time of his death, they discovered that he was about $230,000 in debt. <laughs> yeah, ouch. It's yeah, especially good. in this, I mean, it's in the 60s too. So, right? However, this theory did not hold up so well when they discovered that Rosemary would have had more than enough money to pay it off if they were actually in some trouble. And interesting fact, Abigail, who, like I said, was the heiress to the Folger fortune, had only about one-fifth of the money that Rosemary did. Dollar dollar bills, girl. She was making bank. Holy. Very impressive. So the mafia link wasn't going anywhere, but there was another suspect in the LaBianca case. Detectives learned that their neighbor's house, which was currently unoccupied, had been a hippie hangout. 
And even though, like we had mentioned in the last episode, no one was interested in any hippie theories. But one tenant, Fred Gardner, seemed to have caused some trouble. Gardner, who was a young attorney, quote, has had mental problems in the past and claims he blacks out for periods of time and is not responsible for his actions, end quote. Sounds scary. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like he does some bad shit and just doesn't want to be liable for it. <laughs> Oops, I don't remember. I don't remember anything. He had even attacked both his father and his wife with a knife in the past. Fortunately, they both had been able to escape. Unfortunately, Gardner was only charged with assault relating to the attack on his wife. He was released on parole and was able to continue practicing law. How does that even happen? How? Tell me. How is that okay? Jeez. <laughs> he had also been arrested multiple times for drug charges, and most recently, after he was released on bail, he skipped town. A warrant had been issued on August 1st, 1969, so just prior to the LaBianca attack. And he had been to their home multiple times and apparently had always come back with booze or money. So perhaps he tried this tactic again as he may have needed money while out on the run. And if the couple refused his request, he probably wouldn't have been too happy about it. So that was a possibility anyways, but uh, they suspected that he had fled to New York and this lead eventually seemed to fizzle out as well. There was another interesting idea brought up by one of the LaBianca detectives, however. They pointed out that the most recent Beatles album included the songs Helter Skelter and Piggies, as well as the song Blackbird, that frequently included the word Arise. These were all eerily similar to the writing in Blood at the LaBianca's home that included Helter Skelter, Death to Pigs, and Rise. However, this connection was soon forgot about as well. Of Just like every other detail in this case. <laughs> I was literally rereading this part and I'm like, Blackbird doesn't have the word arise in it. So I'm like sitting there thinking about it, have to like listen to the song. And I'm like, oh, oh, there it is. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I didn't really think Vincent Bugliosi was wrong, but. I mean, got a fact check, man. I had to fact check. You never know. <laughs> uh, at some point during all this, you know, deep dive into the Manson family. I'm just going to sit down and listen to the entire White Album, just be like, okay, see what we hear. Yeah. <laughs> see if I have some crazy ideas. you know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Find some hidden messages. I'll let you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, at the end of part one, we had discussed the murder of Gary Hidman and the arrest of Bobby Beausoleil. Even though the Tate detectives were not interested in any similarities between the Tate and Hidman murders, the LaBianca detectives were. However, the Tate detectives had been informed of the Hinman murder just days after the Cielo Drive incident. It wasn't until October that the LaBianca detectives would learn about it. And this happened because they were getting short on leads, so they decided to talk to the LASO, which is the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, to see if they had any similar murders. And they, of course, did. And there had also been some new developments in the case. Dun, dun, dun. Ooh, it's getting good. <laughs> the raid at Spawn Ranch, where Bobby Beausoleil had been living before his arrest, happened on August 16, 1969. According to the authorities, the 26 suspects that were living at the abandoned movie set had been arrested for their involvement in auto theft. They were apparently converting Volkswagens into dune buggies, which honestly sounds very fun. I'm <laughs> just totally. saying. I'd be down for that. Not the theft part, though, obviously. 
During the raid, a large arsenal of weapons had been found as well. Spawn Ranch was an isolated place located in the Simi Hills. It was owned by George Spawn, an 80-year-old blind man. He was aware that there were people living on his set, but he wasn't aware of their activities. And apparently, he had been afraid of them. Which just breaks my heart, honestly. Oh, <laughs> poor dude. Man. Only days after the raid, however, all of the suspects were released. As it was discovered, the arrest warrant was misdated. Which is always so infuriating. Oh, man. Just do your job. Exactly. Do your job. Just do your job. Do we have to get t-shirts that just say, do your job? Because I swear we say it all the time. Yeah. It's not that hard. So from there, this group moved to an even more secluded ranch known as the Barker Ranch. Located in Death Valley, which is very suiting. Mm -hmm. The terrain was so rugged that it was almost impossible to get to. Fast forward back to October, another raid took place. This time arresting 24 suspects in similar auto theft charges and also arson as well. Charles Manson, leader of the group known as the Manson family, had been arrested as well. And oh man, I am so excited to introduce you guys to the Manson family. Like, it's, this is going to be so fun. It's going to get wild. It's going to get weird. <laughs> uh, but I will warn you first that there are so many people and therefore so many names. And plus, everybody has nicknames, at least one, possibly yeah. more. Or you know. Yeah, no. Uh, so you may need to get your red strings out for this to make all of the connections. I know I did. <laughs> so during the raid that took place over a few days, two girls emerged from the bushes a few miles from the ranch, looking for help from the officers. They explained that they were attempting to flee the family. And this was Stephanie Schramm and Kitty Lutzinger. This right away tweaked the interest of the investigators as they had been trying to locate Kitty for quite some time, as she was Bobby Beausoleil's girlfriend. So she was arrested and taken in for questioning. It's probably not the help that she was looking for exactly, but at least she had gotten away from the ranch. Right. <laughs> yeah. The girl was only 17 years old and five months pregnant. Oh. When the father of her unborn child disappeared one day, no one would tell her what happened or where he went. It was only after several weeks that she had learned that he had been arrested. Still, quite some time after that, she started to hear more details. She learned that it was for Hinman's murder and that Bobby and another family member, Susan Atkins, had been sent to Hinman's house by Charlie in order to collect some money. A fight then broke out and Hinman had been killed. Kitty also heard through the grapevine that Susan told others that she was in a fight with a man, he pulled her hair, so she stabbed him multiple times in the legs. Susan was arrested in the Barker raid under the name Sadie Mae Glutz. Which, fun fact about that name, Charles Manson gave her that name, and she loved it. She thought it was just the best because it came from Charlie, but it was actually to knock her down a peg <laughs> because she was pretty high on herself. And he was like, here's an ugly name for you. It suits you. Sadie Mae Glutz. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. And she had still been in custody, so detectives went over to question her as well. Her story didn't implicate Manson at all, but she did admit that Bobby and herself had been sent there to collect some inheritance. Hidman wouldn't cooperate, so Bobby sliced open his face. They spent a couple days there, making sure he wouldn't escape. One night, Susan heard Hidman yelling from another room, Don't. 
Bobby, and then he staggered into the same room as her, bleeding from the chest. And he didn't die right away. He was left to suffer as the other two were wiping down the place. They were about, I know. (laughs) They were about to leave when they heard Gary moaning in pain. Bobby went back in. Susan heard the cries, oh no, Bobby, please don't. And then gurgling noises. Then the two stole his car and returned to Spawn Ranch. She had never mentioned that she had done any of the stabbing, and Hidman didn't have any stab wounds on his legs anyways. So where did this detail in Kitty's story come from? Of course, she could have simply been told the wrong information, but this did intrigue investigators. Hidman may not have been stabbed in the legs, but Voracek Frykowski had. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. Shooketh. Shooketh, as they say. So again, the sheriff deputies reached out to the Tate detectives, and once again, they were not that interested. Although this time, they would eventually follow up and interview Kitty. Susan Atkins. Oh, Oh boy. She's a piece of work, man. This is going to be fun. (laughs) Is it? Eh, Not really. Kind of. We'll see. Susan Atkins was moved to Sybil Brown Institute, a women's detention center, after being booked for Gary Hinman's murder. There she met some new friends to talk to because she loved to talk. The first was her cellmate, Ronnie Howard, and then there was Virginia Graham, who Susan shared work assignments with. Sure, Susan, or otherwise known as Crazy Sadie, was a bit odd, but she seemed like a nice young girl to them. Of course, they couldn't be more wrong about that. Nope. As they would find out. When Virginia asked what she was in for, she was surprised to find out that it was first-degree murder. She didn't want to push the subject too much, but the next day it was brought up again. Virginia asked Susan if she really did it. Susan smiled and said sure, but went on to explain that the police had got it all wrong. They had thought that she had held Hinman down while Bobby had stabbed him, but obviously the man was much bigger than her, so that wouldn't be possible. Bobby held him, and she did the stabbing. Susan also went on to tell Virginia about a man named Charlie. Quote, he was the strongest man alive. He had been to prison, but had never been broken. Susan said she followed his orders without question. They all did. All of the kids who lived with him. He was their father, their leader, their love. End quote. And you just gotta love those cults, hey? Oh, man. You can be your father and your lover all in the same person? That's not okay, honey. No, it's not. It's just not okay. It's not. Yeah. Ugh, disturbing. And and Charles liked to um, put that image into their minds yeah. a lot. And it's horrible. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> Just saying. But she keeps going on and the story gets even crazier because Charlie, of course, was Jesus Christ. Naturally. And, of course oh, he was. Obviously. And he was going to lead them into the bottomless pit in Death Valley. Only the chosen family could come with and they would live there in the center of the earth, in their own civilization. Sounds totally logical. Absolutely. Susan would talk openly with Virginia about all of this, and Virginia would have to caution her to be careful about what she said. Crazy Sadie wasn't concerned, though. She didn't think the police were that good. In fact... wrong. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) there's definitely some truth to that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. In fact, she explained that there was another case that they were way off track on, the one on Benedict Canyon. 
Virginia was surprised as she knew she was referring to the Tate murders. Susan then asked with excitement, you know who did it, don't you? Virginia said, of course, she did not. And Susan replied, well, you're looking at her. Psycho. Eerie, because all of this she's just thrilled about. And she's just like so happy and like mm -hmm. no remorse and just like, yep, yep, I did the things. I did the things. Sometimes she just stops mid-sentence to do some go-go dancing and then, you know, uh -huh. keeps going. Like totally normal. Yeah. They continued to talk for quite some time and Virginia, like the rest of the world, had many questions. And Susan obliged. Why was it done? To shock the world. Why that house? It was isolated. Was it only Susan? No, there were four. Two other girls and a man. Did they know who was inside? No. How did it all go down? Oh, well, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> At the ranch, Charlie had given them instructions. They had worn dark clothes and brought a change of clothes along as well. They parked at the bottom of the hill and walked up to the gate. The man cut the telephone wire and they had got past the gate. They didn't quite say how, but somehow they had gotten inside. The young boy in the car was the first to die. He had seen them, so he was shot four times. Upon entering the house, they saw a man, Wojciech, on the couch and a woman, Abigail, reading in a chair. Susan didn't know any of their names at the time, but after seeing the news, she was able to identify who was who. The other stayed in the living room while Sadie moved to the bedrooms. She found Sharon sitting up in bed and Jay sitting on the edge of her bed and they were chatting. When they noticed Sadie standing in the bedroom door, they were very surprised and they were very frightened. There was no struggle at that point. They were being very cooperative. Then. They had been strung up in the living room with nooses around their necks, so if they moved, they would choke. Farkowski tried to make a break for it and attempted to escape out of the front door. Sadie stabbed him three or four times, but he managed to get outside. Sadie said to Virginia, quote, he was bleeding and ran to the front part, and would you believe that he was there hollering, help, somebody please help me, and nobody came? Then, she said, we finished him off. Ugh. E. Hate it. Ooh. She is terrible. She just mocks them. Like, how funny was that? That he was begging for his life. Like, you are a monster. It's not monster. fucking funny, man. That's horrible. She went on to explain Sharon's death, which she seemed to really enjoy. And she even laughed throughout her whole story. And just a warning that this part is quite disturbing, which I'm sure everyone already knows considering the crime scene in the autopsy, but I just want to give an extra warning here. Yeah, it's bad. Sharon was the last to die. Susan held her arms behind her while Sharon pleaded for her life and the babies. Susan replied, quote, look, bitch, I don't care about you. I don't care if you're going to have a baby. You had better be ready. You are going to die and I don't feel anything about it. End quote. And then she killed her and tasted her blood, describing it as a trip and that it was warm and sticky and nice. She told Virginia, quote, I thought to taste death and yet give life. End quote. Tell me, Sadie, Susan, or whatever the fuck, what life are you giving? You are only taking away. Like, like not just one life there, but two. Exactly. 
not to mention the murder of the four other victims in the house, but murdering a mother in cold blood that is carrying a fully formed baby and telling her that her and her baby are going to die and finding it amusing? I can't even imagine a more inhuman or horrendous thing you could do to a person. And the amount of fear in the last moments of that woman's life would have been unimaginable and no one should ever have to experience that. So no, Susan, you're not giving life. At this point, you don't even deserve your own life. I couldn't have said it better myself. In my opinion. I'm knocking shit over on my desk because I'm talking with my hands because I'm mad. (laughs) And it just keeps going. Virginia, who I'm sure was probably just shitting her pants at this point, asked if it really didn't bother her to kill Sharon when she was eight and a half months pregnant. And this confused Susan. And she replied, well, I thought you understood. I loved her. And in order for me to kill her, I was killing a part of myself when I killed her. Like, okay. I'm sure Virginia at this point was like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm, I, yes, I definitely understand. Just please don't shake me. (laughs) Right? Like you are onto something there, dear. Mm -hmm, Yep. I'm going to go climb onto my bunk and cry. Yeah, exactly. Susan wasn't totally satisfied with this whole bloodbath, however, as they had big plans of mutilation, but unfortunately, they had run out of time. Boo-hoo. Mainly, she wanted to cut out the baby. Oh, I fucking hate it. I, I can't even. And they were also going to, I don't know if I can say this without gagging, eyeball trigger warning. They were going to take out the eyeballs of the victims and squish them against the walls. Oh, it gives me the heebies like right at the back of my neck. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you guys could see our faces right now, they're both like mm. full cringe. It's not okay. I wish I could insert like emojis into podcasts because it would be like the bleh one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> and the angry sweary face. Oh, yes. We use that one a lot when we talk about these yeah. things over yeah. Snapchat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Like, seriously, like, can we insert some fluff and stuff or something here? Because oh, we could. Uh, yeah, we totally could. <laughs> I feel like I need some fluff and stuff and we're like hardly halfway through. <laughs> well, okay, here you go. Um, I built a leprechaun trap for the first time ever. Oh, that's so sweet. I don't know yeah. how that works, but it sounds well, lovely. Apparently I've never, ever celebrated St. Patrick's Day with my kids because my daughter's born on St. Patty's Day, so it's always about her. But, you know, kindergarten is like changing the game up. So you have to make a trap for St. Patrick's Day mm-hmm. to lure a leprechaun in to try to catch it. So, oh. like, if you can catch a leprechaun, like, you get all the all the gold, right? That's of the course. thing. Yeah. That's so the arrangement. Made, we made, like, a rainbow trap. Like, it looks like you have to walk through a little rainbow and there's a mm. trap door. And then, but we put... I used a toilet paper tube covered mm-hmm. in, green, mm-hmm. in green paper. And then at the end, we just put saran wrap so he could see the gold. Oh, a little mm-hmm. pot of gold with chocolate gold in it. Yep. But he can't get to it. So oh, good. we'll see if it works. Good stuff. Thank there you, you for that fluffing stuff. I've totally <laughs> forgotten everything that we had just talked about. Yeah, and it's totally I, fine. Rainbows and leprechauns and shit, Exactly. Right? I definitely won't lose sleep over that tonight. No. So, no. yeah. <laughs> and I can send you pictures of the trap. Perfect. That sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. All right. Let's get back to this horror show. (laughs) So after all of this, Susan was elated and tired, but at peace. 
She also knew that this was the beginning of Helter Skelter. And Virginia was probably like, oh, goddamn, here we go again. I'm sure this will be good. Tell me, crazy Sadie, what in the world is Helter Skelter? So Sadie was manically trying to explain the concept. And not surprisingly, it was hard to follow. But this is what Virginia understood. Quote, there was this group, these chosen people that Charlie had brought together. And they were elected, this new society, to go out all over the country and all over the world to pick out people at random and execute them, to release them from this earth, end quote. And that you have to have a real love in your heart to do this for people, Susan explained. I just wish there was words. I know. To describe my face. I know. Uh-huh. It's just like, yeah, <laughs> I don't have the words to describe it either. It's just, right? It's like, okay. what am I supposed to say to that (laughs) to wrap up the night of the Tate murders after they had left Sadie realized that she had lost her knife but they decided not to go back for it they changed their clothes and after driving for a bit stopped at someone's house to use their water outside to wash up the homeowner caught them and tried to take their keys from their car so they couldn't get away but Charlie turned the key and they drove off Virginia had been confused during this story as Sadie had mentioned Charles or Charlie multiple times. She, of course, assumed that this was Charles Manson, even though she had thought that he had stayed behind at the ranch. This would later add much confusion to the investigation and a lot of doubt to her story, as it had actually been Charles Tex Watson that had been involved in the Tate murders. And just the family in general, I swear there's like 10 Charles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like every guy that's there is either a Charles, like their actual name is Charles, or their nickname is Charles. Like, Right? And I, I also wonder, like, did Charles Manson actually nickname them like Charlie or Chuck or whatever mm-hmm. so that he was less known? Maybe. To the public, right? So that he could be more invisible? It's just a thought. You know. Perhaps. Or that, you know, when they're gone out to do these murders, it's going to cause mass confusion about what happened and who did it. Totally. Either that or he just really likes his name because, you know, that's I know a possibility. He, he did uh, propagate some children in his early days and they were mm-hmm. all named Charles too, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> Plus some additional interesting names to, to go along oh, with yeah. it. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. which I do mention at, at some point. <laughs> Sadie tried to follow up with the story of two more murders, the ones of the grocery store owners, the next night, as they had done those ones too, But Virginia really couldn't handle any more at this point, and she got the fuck out of there and went to take a shower. (laughs) Yeah, which fair enough. Shower too. Same. (laughs) The next day, Virginia was still pretty conflicted by the story that she was told by Susan. It was such an insane story that she couldn't tell if it was fabricated or not. She tried to hold it in, but she had to talk to somebody. So she talked to Ronnie Howard, Susan's roommate. The two had actually been friends years prior as they both had been call girls and they had worked together. They had decided that they needed to find out for sure, so they needed to ask for more information that only the killer would know. Even though Virginia didn't mention it to Susan, she had actually known one of the victims, Jay Sebring, and she had also visited 10,050 Cielo Drive back in 1962, (laughs) which is bizarre. It's so wild. The connections and the coincidences in this case just blow my mind. It's insane. 
Virginia and her husband were looking at the property to lease. No one was there to show her around, so she was only able to look inside through the windows. This at least gave Virginia an opportunity to ask Susan about the interior of the house. But Crazy Sadie wasn't feeling very talkative that day, so she didn't get much more information out of her about that. She did learn a few more random details, though. The family had known Terry Melcher, son of Doris Day and a record producer, and he had lived in the house a year or so prior. They had met Terry through Dennis Wilson, the drummer of the Beach Boys, as Charlie, Susan, and some other members had lived at Wilson's for a while, randomly enough. Although Wilson didn't exactly have a choice in the matter, he had given a ride to two young hitchhikers one night, and then a few days after that, he saw them hitchhiking again. So this time, he took them back to his place for a bit. He left for a recording session, and when he came back, Manson and a dozen others had moved into his house. Well, that's just fine, right? And they just stayed for months. They're like, this is our house now. (laughs) I just wonder what Dennis Wilson's therapy bills were like after knowing that he housed Charles Manson and the family. Like, right. He had that weird connection to them and no kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I think anybody connected to the family after all this were like, watching their backs because who knows what would set them off right and they're like well here's a hundred thousand dollars for my therapy bills yes fix me (laughs) please (laughs) i need it right oh man so crazy uh virginia also learned that there were more bodies out in the desert and that there were more to follow their celebrity hit list included people such as elizabeth taylor uh steve mcqueen and frank sinatra just to name a few. They had big ambitions. Like goals, I guess. (laughs) Goals. (laughs) Hashtag goals. People would notice if they took them out for sure. So absolutely. I guess that's the entire point. Yeah. Susan had a visitor, Sue Bartell, one day in November. She later told her roommate that one of the family members, known as Zero, had died by suicide, shooting himself in the head. You would think that she would be upset by this news. Not crazy Sadie. She was almost excited and had thought it would have been a beautiful thing to witness. No. (laughs) Although Zero's death had been ruled a suicide by police, it was rather suspicious, to say the least. (laughs) You don't say. According to the witnesses including Sue Bartell, Zero had died while playing Russian roulette by himself. One of the other girls, Linda Baldwell, went on to explain that they had been lying on the mattress when he suddenly noticed a leather gun case in the stand next to the bed. He said, oh, here's a gun, grabbed it, then mentioned there's only one bullet in it. He then spun the cylinder, held it to his head, and pulled the trigger. It went off, and he, of course, died right then and there weird story right seems totally realistic and not fabricated at all yeah well even more bizarre was the fact that there had been no prints left on either the leather case or the gun itself and when officers checked the gun they had saw that it actually that it actually had one spent round and seven live rounds the thing was fully loaded So either Zero didn't quite understand how Russian roulette was played, or maybe 
it wasn't a suicide after all. Maybe not. Babs? I mean, don't know. I mean, maybe his his ghost wiped the prints off the gun and the leather case. Perhaps that's entirely possible. Or he has no fingerprints at all. In mm-hmm. Right. And I'm sure the fact that, you know, he had information that would help the Tate-LaBianca investigation had nothing to do with this. No, of course at not. At all. <laughs> On November 12th, Virginia was informed that she was going to be transferred to the Corona Women's Prison, which is such a funny name now. It has so such a different, a different feel to it. Different yeah. vibe. Therefore, the responsibility of getting information out of Susan had been transferred to Ronnie. It didn't take long for Susan to start talking to Ronnie about her LSD trips, the family, all of the things that she had experienced in life, which, of course, included death. She told a very similar story to Ronnie about the Tate murders. However, Ronnie had a harder time keeping all of the information straight. She did learn a few more details that hadn't come out before, though. The girls involved in the murders were named Katie and Linda. Someone had stayed behind in the vehicle. Tex had a gun. The girls had knives. Two people had been holding Sharon Tate while Susan stabbed her, and she had used a towel and Sharon's blood to write pig on the door. Susan went on to mention that guy that was found with a fork in his stomach and that it wasn't exactly the same cast as the night before. The girls were different, but Tex was on it again. She didn't say much else about this night. She got caught up talking about LSD, sex, Helter Skelter, Manson, (laughs) the baby that Manson delivered and named Zizozos Zadbrak Glutz. (laughs) And yeah, that was legitimately that that baby's name. Um, (laughs) And then eventually she circled back to murder. She often talked about murder as if it was sexual, saying things like it's better than a climax or stabbing is like sex because it's all in and out, which is so I just can't even explain it's how disturbing okay. that is. It's yeah, not okay. I don't think I have to explain how disturbing that is, but you know. She then laughed as she talked about a man they had decapitated somewhere out in the desert. Ronnie was now fully convinced that Susan was telling the truth and she decided that she had to say something or more innocent people were going to die. Ronnie tried talking to a deputy in the jail, but she just kept getting brushed off. She told them she knew who committed the Tate-LaBianca murders, and she just kept getting told to forget about it. Of course. Because that's Why not... Why they in- want to know any information about those? They were on it. They it's knew all on- the things they needed right? to know. It's only like the biggest case that is happening in the world at that moment. But okay, sure. When she eventually was able to talk to someone about it who would relay the information to the lieutenant, the messenger misunderstood parts of Ronnie's story and therefore gave false information. The lieutenant knew these details were incorrect, so he decided that the informant was lying. Great game of telephone happening there. Right. Virginia was having the same luck at Corona. A month went by before she was finally able to set up a meeting with the staff psychologist, but at this point, Everyone had already known the story that she was trying to tell. But shout out to those ladies. I yes. Mean, it's not easy, I imagine, to Mm-mm. narc on your bunkmate. No. And they right? were terrified. They're like, we've never done this before. Never considered ratting on somebody before. But like, this is big. It's, it's too big to not say anything. Exactly. 
So not only did Kitty Lutzinger significantly help the investigation by pointing detectives in Susan's direction, but she made another comment that had helped identify someone else that had a lot of information to share as well. Charles liked the idea of having a biker gang around the ranch as some added protection. He tried to get the straight Satanists to hang, hang around Spawn Ranch, but only one of them was really interested in the group, and that was Danny DiCarlo. The gang spent a lot of time around Venice, California, so the LaBianca detectives asked the Venice PD to keep an eye out for Danny. About a month later, on November 12th, they had received a call from the Venice PD. They didn't have Danny, but they did have another straight Satanist named Al Springer, and he was in for an unrelated charge, but they asked if they wanted to talk to him anyways. And this worked out pretty well for the LaBianca detectives because Springer not only knew Charlie, but Charlie had actually bragged to him about killing people, saying, we knocked off five of them just the other night. Charlie offered the bikers anything they wanted. They could choose any girl, any bike, any buggy. Springer explained that there were naked girls everywhere at the ranch, and as many as half of them were under 18. It's disturbing. It's not okay. I don't know how many times I've said that. Tonight. I know. I'm gonna Should we have a have counter? Start a tally. Yeah. Yes. Somebody count how many times we, we say these things, <laughs> or just take the clips of us saying them and then mash it all together, and then we'll see. <laughs> we'll make some cool TikTok video out of it. Exactly. <laughs> this was not Springer's scene, especially because he liked to keep clean, and this was definitely not a sanitary place. <laughs> No one else really stuck around either because they were all tired of catching the clap. Yeah, that's Ugh. not okay. Yikes. <laughs> like, it's so gross. <laughs> it's bad. Manson had obviously figured that since they were bikers, they would be cool with murder. So he talked about it a lot. He would even show off his favorite sword. This sword, Danny told him, had been used to cut off some guy's ear. Some guy with a name like Henland, and someone named Bosley, and a couple others had killed him. At the same scene, they wrote something on the wall in blood and had also left a panther's hand or paw print as they were trying to pin the murders on the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers being an African-American revolution party whose original purpose was to patrol neighborhoods in order to protect residents from police brutality. Their numbers had peaked in the 60s, so it was a, a pretty big deal. But mm -hmm. Charlie and, there's, and his followers tried to blame everything on the Panthers. And they had even told Danny that they had killed one of them. Apparently, Tex had gotten a whole bunch of weed from them, but never paid up. And Charlie refused to pay as well, so the Panthers threatened to wipe out all of Spawn Ranch. During this confrontation, Charlie pulled out his twenty-two Bluntline long barrel and shot him in the chest. And damn Springer's just over here spilling some tea. <laughs> yeah, man. He's like, I got the deets. And he's not even done yet. I'll tell you all you want to know about those dirty clap people. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> dirty clap people. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, I love it. He had also asked if they had a case with writing on a refrigerator. As he had heard, Charlie had written something about pigs in blood on a refrigerator door. The LaBianca detectives were a little leery about this detail, as they knew it was actually Helter Skelter that was written on the fridge, and Death the Pigs was written on the living room wall. 
Regardless, they decided it was time to bring in the Tate detectives to listen to Al Springer's story. And I'm sure the LaBianca detectives were feeling pretty good about this find at this point. Totally. And they just, they had to rub it in just a little bit. Like, hey, look what we found. Look what we found. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what was happening. <laughs> After a bit of a recap for the Tate detective so he could get all up to date, there was yet another murder that Springer had heard about. And again, his source was Danny DiCarlo. There was a cowboy named Shorty. His real name was Donald Jerome Shea. He had worked at the ranch and had apparently heard too much. So the only reasonable thing there was to do was to cut off his arms, his legs, and his head. Naturally. Like, what the fuck? And if you recall, Susan Atkins had told Ronnie about a guy that they had cut the head off of. So many connections. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a yarn basket with how many red strings I have going on here. Absolutely. <laughs> I just think it's funny that he knew too many details, so they like offed him. Mm -hmm. But yet they just let, you know, crazy Sadie just like blab her guts out. Right? He knew too much details, but the literally the very first day that he met these straight Satanists, he was like, hey, let me tell you about some murders. Right? Uh, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> This is a contradiction. <laughs> totally. I feel like there's more to the Shorty story that we've never, ever found out. But. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Springer's visits were all around the same time in August, the last being the 15th, the night before the raid. So when Charlie told him that he had knocked off five just the other night, there was a pretty good chance that it was indeed the Tate murders that he was referring to. But even after all of this, the detectives were still... Not that impressed, <laughs> especially because the majority of the story wasn't first-hand information. The only thing that the Tate and the LaBianca detectives took away from that interview was that perhaps the murders were connected, but everything else they yeah, forgot about. Like, right? Like, huh, maybe we're getting somewhere. Perhaps they're connected. Like, what? Of course they're connected. <laughs> Obviously. And I just love that they just they don't believe people because it's like they weren't told directly, but it's like how, how this is how investigations work. Like, yes, it's not the best witness, but this is part of the, the bread trail to get to the so witness. You find you know. the better witness. Exactly. Exactly. This is how it works. This is investigation. And again, do your job. Do your job. Do it. <laughs> Springer had promised he would get Danny DiCarlo to come down and talk to him himself. He was scheduled to come at 8.30 on November 17th, but he didn't show up. And this was a little concerning since Danny had apparently been afraid that he was going to get offed like Shorty after the raid. He did eventually make it around 5 p.m. that day, though. He had been pulled over while driving, and he had been taken in for some outstanding traffic tickets. But once the biker was settled in, he had a wealth of information to share. He looked like a so-called typical biker as well. He had the tattoos, handlebar mustache, scars. He looked pretty tough. I don't know why I said that. doesn't really make any <laughs> difference. I guess it's just funny that this like tough dude was terrified of this tiny man right. because he, he had a lot of, a lot of power. <laughs> right. We don't yes. yet know how tiny this man is, but right. I'm sure we will soon. Uh, but... We will. I mean... <laughs> I don't get into great detail about it in this episode, but next episode, I will tell you how tiny this man is. <laughs> Which is like my favorite part of the whole thing. I know. But yeah. Me too. Me Anyways. Too. <laughs> Anyways. 
Since he had stayed at the ranch for quite a few months, he was able to give the detectives some more detail about the place and the people that Springer could not. He had also taken care of all the guns. He cleaned them and repaired them, and he had always known when one had been taken out. Well, this was very useful. Like, they got a good yeah. source here. Danny was able to provide some more insight into the interesting living situation at Spawn's ranch. As mentioned before, it was an old Western movie set, and it was owned by a blind man named George Spawn. George had claimed he was afraid of the people that lived on the land, but there was one member of the family who had always taken care of him, and that was Lynette Frommy. And I always thought it was Lynette Fromm, but I heard on an interview today that she was saying, like, Frommy. So I was like, oh, okay. I always thought it was from yeah me too but cool. i mean you learn something new after how many it, years of knowing this case exactly but i just want to be like no that's wrong but it's like no that's that is literally the human that i'm talking about saying it so yeah. <laughs> i can't tell her that she's wrong <laughs> so lynette's nickname was squeaky <laughs> which is we'll get into it in a second it's disturbing <laughs> This arrangement was not just out of the kindness of Squeaky's heart. It had actually been orchestrated by Charlie. Squeaky had been instructed to take care of his every need in hopes that when old George kicked the bucket, he would turn everything over to her. And the reason why her name was her nickname was Squeaky was because of the noise she would make when the old man touched her. Ew. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. So many things in this story make me uncomfortable. I know. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> exactly. You think I'm a bad person for laughing while I talk about murder. It's just because I'm very uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> and I'm an awkward human and that's how I respond. Totally. Not like Sadie. She just fucking laughs because she has no heart. <laughs> right. Yes. We're different. In regards to the Hinman murder, he explained that after Charlie cut off his ear with a sword, he told him he could either sign everything over or he had to die. Charlie then left, and after a few days with no progress, Bobby called up Charlie to find out what he should do. Charlie simply said, well, you know what to do. So Bobby killed Hinman, wrote on the walls with his blood, and made a panther symbol with his palm. Later, Bobby realized that that print would probably be identifiable, so he went back to wipe it away. It had already been several days, so it didn't come off. The print had been traced back to Beausoleil, so this made the story credible. And another lovely detail, Beausoleil told DiCarlo when he had gone back into the home to wipe away the prince, he could hear the maggots eating away on Gary. I hate it. I knew you would love the maggots, oh, the maggot I part. I hate maggots so I know much. you do. I had wrote it and then I was like, oh, wait, I know Michelle hates maggots. I'm sorry, Michelle. Uh, and then I left it in there. <laughs> you're the best. You're welcome. <laughs> So during this seven-hour interview, a lot of names got thrown around, many seeming to be involved in one murder or another. There was Charlie, Tex, Clem, Bobby, Bruce, Sadie, Linda, Mary, Patricia, Ruth, Lynette, and the list goes on. So we should probably talk about these unique individuals, at least some of the key players here. Mm -hmm. So the cast... Charles Tex Watson, 24, was, not surprisingly, from Texas. Growing up, he was an honor student and the captain of a football team. He was young, athletic, and attractive. Manson liked to have a few of these guys around to lure the women in. It had seemed as though Tex had been involved in multiple murders, including the Tate-LaBianca murders. 
Other nicknames for him included Charles Montgomery and Texas Charlie. Robert Bobby Beausoleil, 22, was born in Santa Barbara to a large Catholic family. He had gone to juvie when he was 15 and then moved to LA to pursue music and acting. Bobby, of course, had been arrested for the murder of Gary Hinman. His other nickname was Cupid because, again, he was another attractive dude. Steve Clem Grogan, 18, born in Los Angeles. He was a high school dropout, a musician, artist, and a ranch hand. His name was getting thrown around a lot during the discussions of Shorty's death. Other nicknames for him included Clem Tufts and Scramblehead, because apparently he was not that smart. Wow, poor Clem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What can you do? That's unfortunate. (laughs) Bruce Davis, 27, was from Louisiana and has apparently been described as Manson's right-hand man. His name was being mentioned during discussions of the Hinman and Shorty murders. Didn't find any nicknames for this dude, though, which I'm sure there was. Mm -hmm. Couldn't find any, though. Susan Atkins, 21, was born in San Gabriel, California, but grew up in North Carolina. Her parents were alcoholics, her mother died of cancer, and her family broke apart. Once she joined the family, she was one of the more dominating women, often trying to get the most attention from Charlie. Other nicknames for her included Sadie Mae Glutz, Crazy Sadie, and Sexy Sadie. The last one's questionable. I would say, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Patricia Quenwink. Krenwinkle. Ugh. You know how you know a word in your head or a name in your head, but you've never actually like pronounced it with your mouth. And then yeah. it's just like, oh, like I know that name. <laughs> but it doesn't flow my well mouth out of my, out of my lips. Does not. <laughs> no. Patricia Krenwinkle, 22, born in Los Angeles. She was often bullied in school for being overweight and she had excessive growth of body hair. She had been considered... <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to think that's so funny. She actually had a condition. It was a legitimate thing. (laughs) And poor girl. I know. It's it's terrible. It is. I I feel for her. (laughs) She had considered becoming a nun, but instead apparently ended up in the Manson family. Same thing, right? (laughs) No. No. Complete opposite, actually. (laughs) Yep. Her name had been mentioned in both the Tate and LaBianca investigations as well. Other nicknames included Katie, Mary Ann Scott, Yellow, and Big Patty. Her nicknames are the ones that get me. I'm like, wait, who the fuck are they talking about? Like, who's Katie? Who's Seriously. Marianne? Like, yeah. Usually I can keep like their nicknames straight, but you're right. This one, I get confused. The Katie one always messes me up. Yeah. Cause like, it's not even close. Not even close. It's not like some creative nickname. It's just... It's just a name. <laughs> right? Yeah. Bugs me. Same. Linda Kasabian, 20, was born in Maine and raised in New Hampshire. She was intelligent and shy, but with a difficult home life, she dropped out of school and ran away at the age of 16. Her name had been brought up in the Tate investigation. Other nicknames included Linda Christian. Not the most creative one. <laughs> no. At least she's still Linda. She's still Linda. That's true. It, it helps. Lynette Squeaky Frommy, is that how I said it last time? Uh, 21, was born in Santa Monica. She started out as a successful dancer, but then got turned onto drugs and became homeless. Manson took her in, and boy, was she loyal to him. 
It also seemed as though she largely helped with recruitment of other young women into the family. Her other nickname was Red for her red hair. Makes sense. Naturally. (laughs) Ruth Ann Morehouse, 18, was born in Toronto, Ontario. And I only bring up Ruth as she had been one of Danny's favorites, but he was shocked when this sweet and small 17-year-old told him, I can hardly wait to get my first pig. Just to, you know, show the mindset of these young girls. Awful. Other nicknames included Ruth and Smack and Oish. I kind of like that one. Oish. I know. (laughs) Mary Bruner, 26, born in Wisconsin. She had gone to two universities before meeting Charlie. Mary was considered the first family member and was very hesitant about letting other women live with them. But Lynette joined, and then another, and then all of a sudden, there was dozens of them. The other girls often looked up to her like a mother figure. She had been brought up in the Hinman murder. Other nicknames for her included Mother Mary, Mary Manson, Linda D. Manson, and Mary Oshie, to name a few. She had a lot. (laughs) And then there was Charlie Manson, 35. Born Charles Mills Maddock in Cincinnati, Ohio. His mother was 16-year-old Kathleen Manson Bauer (laughs) Cavender Maddock. His father is basically... I know. (laughs) It's a lot. His father is basically unknown, but there had been many men that had come into his life for a short amount of time as so-called father figures. His mother was an alcoholic and had been arrested in 1939 for assault and robbery. Manson was sent to West Virginia to live at his aunt's house during this time. From a young age, around nine, he started to get into trouble. He set his school on fire and was getting caught stealing. At 13, he was sent to a Catholic school for male delinquents in Indiana. It was a strict school, and any wrongdoing would be punishable by a beating with a wooden spoon or a leather strap. So Manson ran away and eventually met back up with his mother. Shortly after this, though, he robbed a grocery store. Eventually, he and another boy obtained a gun and stole a car, and this would make thieving much easier. This time when he was caught, he was sent to a different strict reform school. And this gets real dark. With encouragement of staff, Manson was regularly raped and beaten by the other students. He had tried to run away 18 times. This is when he learned how to play the insane game. He was a very small guy. So when he wasn't able to physically defend himself, he would put on a big show of screeching and flailing in order to convince others that he was insane and unpredictable. He had been moved around to some other schools, one of which determined that he had an above average IQ, but he was deemed as aggressively antisocial. In 1952, he was caught raping another boy at knife point. He was transferred to a federal reformatory in Virginia, where he committed quote, eight serious disciplinary offenses, three involving homosexual acts, end quote. So again, he was moved, but this time it was to a maximum security reformatory where he had stayed until he was 20 years old and let out early for good behavior. Probably because, you know, he wasn't around other people. That's the only reason. As you can imagine, he continued to be in and out of prison for the rest of his life. In fact, by the age of 32, more than half of his life was spent in prison. He had accepted it as his home and even asked the authorities' permission to stay. 
And despite his attempt to stay, Manson was released in 1967. And shortly after is when he started to form the family. Along with that, Charlie wanted to be a famous musician, bigger than the Beatles. While in prison, he learned to play the guitar and apparently had prepared about 80 songs to be released once he was out. He tried desperately to get into the music scene in Los Angeles. One obvious attempt was moving into Dennis Wilson's house, as mentioned before. Yeah. Quite desperate. (laughs) But for most producers, his music was much too bizarre. The only ones that really appreciated his work was, of course, the family. Because really, anything that Charlie had said or done was incredibly important to his followers. To them, everything had a deep meaning. But it was often left up to their imaginations to figure out what he was trying to say. And he was excellent at reading people and telling them what they wanted to hear. This is how he would manipulate others into joining the family. For example, after Lynette had been thrown out of her parents' home, Charlie noticed the young girl sitting alone, looking sad. Manson walked up and said, your parents threw you out, didn't they? She thought he must be psychic. So she grabbed her belongings and followed him. Diane Lake was only 14 years old when she had met Charlie. Her parents had become hippies and dropped out of society and she was left behind. When she was brought in to meet the family, they had all been so excited and welcoming almost as if they had been waiting for her, like she was meant to be there. She described the feeling as, quote, like a raindrop joining a puddle. I blended in easily, my loneliness disappearing. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was in the right place at the right time, end quote. Manson would find out what a person needs and tell it back to them. He was a master manipulator. He would also rely heavily on drugs, sex, spiritual teachings, peer pressures from the other girls, and at times physical abuse in order to get control of people. It was a classic cult. Although in the beginning, no one suspected it would become so evil and so deadly. Sure, he clearly had control over these people. He was Jesus Christ, of course. But was he really responsible for the murders of 11 people, even if he wasn't present for them? I guess we'll find out in part three. I guess we will. Yeah. Wow, dude. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's just so infuriating, though, because everybody thought he was such a smart guy and he could read, you know, he could read people, but so much of it was so generic. And it was things that so many people, like young people, were experiencing at that time. Totally. So it was, it was pretty easy to pick out, like, oh, she looks lonely. I'm going to target her loneliness. Oh, her parents left her. This is a daddy issue. I'm going to go after that. Like he wasn't that smart. He just knew what to say. Every single person on that list was under 30. Yeah, absolutely. They were incredibly impressionable. And the times while this was happening in the 60s, the world was changing and people were looking for answers to things. It was this whole movement that was happening and people were looking for answers. So this guy seemed to have had these answers for these people so yeah right. they're gonna they're gonna follow him yeah insane just the little things that he could do and he's like oh i've got you i can control mm-hmm. that like and he spent his life in prison reading people and staying mm-hmm. alive exactly right? yeah and that's... figuring out the best way to screw people so yep 
that's that's what he did in prison to yeah like you said keep alive was to to read people react appropriately and yeah to tell him what they wanted to hear or if he was threatened then he was crazy he was a nut exactly. you can't touch me yeah exactly yeah so that was a lot of information a lot <laughs> apologize uh, my sources, of course, was um, there was Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. I am also going through the audiobook of Diane Lakes, who I had just mentioned, the 14-year-old girl that had joined the family. Her book is called Member of the Family, and oh my God, it is so good. Yeah. I'm like probably not even halfway through it, and I'm like 10 out of 10 would recommend this is blowing my mind. Awesome. Yeah. And the audiobook that I'm listening to, which I got from Audible, is read by her. So oh, it, it makes it just so much better because you just know that there's so much feeling behind it. And yeah. she has to talk about some pretty awful things. And you just have to think like how hard that would be to read those things. I just can't yeah. imagine. Oh, And then, of course, I used Wikipedia as well. <laughs> Mostly for nicknames. <laughs> totally. Because... Patricia's Katie. Right? That makes sense. So yeah, next up, next uh, next part will include, again, so many things, but we are going to get into the trial. Yeah, it's going to get messy, folks. Ugh, I mean, it's yes. been messy, but it's, it's been going to get like... It's been all over the place. Circus messy. Exactly. Yes. And I mean, I'll try my best to wrap it all up in this next part, but there's a very good chance that there could be another one after that. I don't know yet. Yeah. So yeah. And I bet you guys are all so excited to hear about our fluff and stuff. I'm excited for our fluff and stuff. Yeah. So enjoy. <laughs> enjoy. Yes. So Michelle, are you ready for some fluff and stuff? I am so, so ready for some fluff and stuff. And this yes. is a very special fluff and stuff. I'm excited. We have some guests today. We have, Hello. Hi, we have Amy and Alex from Small Town, Not Small Minds. Hello. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being here, guys. So we have a question for you today. And our question is, what is a common misconception about where you live? I like this question because I think when Amy and I were talking about naming our podcast and what we wanted it to be about a lot of it kind of stemmed from us loving components of small town life but then there's kind of a lot of stigma to living in a small town where like okay maybe they're not as educated or like we don't have those city vibes and I think our podcast really brings light like hey there are people in small towns that have big ideas who are doing really inspiring exciting things and also people who are just living their normal lives and we're not all just kind of small-minded people, even though we live in a small town. So it does exist, but I think small-minded people exist everywhere. And so I think a huge part of our podcast is to say, we live in a small town and here's everything that we know and do. And there are other people like us out there. And it's just a great way to connect with other like-minded people. I love that. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. For sure. That was a great answer, Alex. And also mm -hmm. to like showcase what our podcast, Small Towns, Not Small Minds is about. Mm -hmm. I think for me, a misconception is 
uh, obviously a lot of Canada ends up being smaller centers, just the way our country is designed and set up so vast in the land. And so when you get to these smaller hubs, um, as a child growing up, I used to think of them as little like domes and like the way we thought about our lives was really just centered all in that proximity of that dome. And then if you thought about Canada on a bigger scale, it was like a bigger dome that covered our whole country, but there was such a variety in there. And so I guess the misconception is that rural life doesn't exceed beyond these domes as when I was growing up in a small town. And as I've learned as an adult growing up, learning more about the world, being educated, traveling, that life really is so interconnected all the way across the globe. And so I think like Alex was mentioning, when we started up this podcast, it was about creating this bridge and this connection between maybe people who feel as if they're in this silo or dome and they can't see the other areas around them or beyond. And so exposure is everything. So we wanted mm -hmm. to kind of create this passion project of ours to help connect and expose you know, friends and family and people who kind of maybe just don't know, but wanna know more. And so that's kind of the design of small town, not small minds. So reaching mm -hmm. far beyond our own proximity. I love that. And especially everything that the world has gone through in the last year, I just kept thinking like this time last year, I kept thinking just how small the world actually is because we are so connected by, well, right now it's the stupid virus, but I just love that that's your, your opinion. And it's just, we are so connected. I love that. Mm -hmm. Great answers, ladies. Wow. <laughs> Very well thought out. I love that. Uh, Michelle, what about you? Um, well, because I grew up in Edmonton, I'm going to go with where I live now. Um, people think that it was a temporary move. Like nobody's going to want to stay in a small center because you're missing out on, you know, the shopping malls and all of the Starbucks and whatever. But honestly, I would never move back to a city. You could not pay me to move back to a city. And I love it because we have so many amazing local businesses and we have so many different opportunities within our town that make you want to stay. And you can see people that you met at work at the grocery store and you can have a conversation with them and you actually have that connection with them rather than being in the city where everybody's just a face and here the names to the faces. And I really like that. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what about you? My first instinct is a lot like your lady's first answers is that there's a lot of misconceptions about, um, yeah, people in small minds, they're, they're not as well educated, but you know, as a community, we need these educated people to, to make a place run successfully. Like there's, there's veterinarians, there's lawyers, bankers, like all kinds of different things. So I really agree with what you guys had said. Um, I'll, I'll choose more of a, a different answer because I live out in the middle of nowhere. So that's kind of an experience that not a lot of people have. So I think a, a common misconception is that it's so isolated that it's scary for people. But I really take comfort in, in being isolated and being in my own world and just having so much freedom to be by ourselves and do what we want. And people think that that makes you a target, but I really, I don't think so. I think it's more freeing than being uh, put in a box, like in a city. Love that. Cool. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else that you guys want to plug for your podcast? 
any more explanations about how your shows go or when you generally upload? Sure. Um, we post our new episodes every Friday. And again, like Amy and I quite covered what the kind of gist of our podcast is about. But like Tara and Michelle said on our episode, we're a nice palate cleanser for those of you who like to listen to some uh, more gruesome crime and murder. You can pop us on after, so you, maybe you don't have nightmares afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and you can find us on TikTok as well as Instagram. Both handles are small town, not small minds. And most of our listeners listen to us on Spotify, but anywhere you listen to your local podcasts, we're on all platforms that way. Beautiful. Excellent. Well, thanks again for being on our show, ladies. It was lovely to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. All right. That was lovely to have those ladies on our show. And we also so were guests on their show as well. And we answered the question, when do you think you could justify murder? Which, ladies, Ooh. what a great question. It's amazing. I am jealous I did not think of that question. So if you want to go listen to our responses, you can head on over to Small Town, Not Small Minds. So... Yeah, go check it out. It was so much fun. We loved it. And make sure to answer our question as well. What is a common misconception about where you live? So that can be the city that you live in, the, you know, small piece of land in the middle of nowhere, whatever. The, the province, province in. the the country even. I know there's a lot of misconceptions about Canada out there. I'm sure there's lots more about other countries too. Yeah. So we want to know and uh, let us know what you think about the episode. You can email us at murdermerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at murdermerlot podcast, Facebook at murdermerlot podcast, and Twitter at murdermerlot1. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. Yes. And I'm not telling them yet. Okay. We're still deep in Manson. Yep. You guys can wait and find out. What... That sounded terrible. It really did way. sound terrible. Mm, eh. a... yeah. On this week's Out of Context quote. <laughs> we are deep inside of Manson. <laughs> Lovely. Um, so maybe next week I will. Spill the beans. Spill the beans about what we're reading next because it's kind of fun. Yeah, um, it's not gonna yeah. be fun. It's, it's actually terrible, fucking terrible. But you know, <laughs> uh, but we're excited anyways because yeah. we're dark and twisty humans, and we're just excited that we have a plan. Let's I be know. honest. Oh man, <laughs> we got a lineup of books, and we're like, oh yeah, can't yeah, wait. Wait to read them. It's mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. So in the meantime, remember to drink wine because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye.